Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let me get the latest uh, from uh, what is happening in Israel and that part of the world. Uh, today, we are fortunate to be joined by Ambassador Alon Pincus, former Israel General Counsel in New York, uh, former Chief of Staffs to two foreign ministers, so uh, certainly well-versed in what is happening in that part of the world. Uh, Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, I guess over here in the U.S., we've seen lots of uh, news reporting about massing of troops and uh, materiel on the borders with, with Gaza. Can you give us the, the latest update how where the situation is today and how you think it might unfold over the next several days? Well, uh, thank you for having me uh, uh, to start with. Um, he, here's, the, uh, here's the story. There's been an, an amassing of, uh, as, you, as you correctly uh, pointed out, to, of uh, ground troops, tanks, artillery, infantry, armored infantry, um, um, and so on and so forth, supported by attack helicopters and what have you. Um, mostly on the, on the northern and eastern um, um, parts of the Gaza Strip. Now, everyone assumes that, um, you know, a ground operation, a large-scale ground operation, is therefore a foregone conclusion. Um, so let me put three question marks uh, next to that. First, there is the uh, U.S., President Biden, um, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and Secretary of State um, Anthony Blinken, all three of which very politely but very adamantly warned Israel um, of the complications that will be inevitable if, if it so chooses to mount a massive ground operation, with Biden even going further and saying to Israel, gentlemen, uh, with all their, well, ladies and gentlemen, if all their respect, with all their respect, you need to have a, uh, an exit strategy. You need to have a political goal. What is your strategy here? What is your political goal? Um, and I'm not sure that Israel has an answer for that. The second question mark pertains to the fate of 222 hostages, of which uh, at least 33 are babies and or toddlers. Um, a ground operation could uh, endanger them. A ground operation could uh, um, seal their fate in the, in the most uh, 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 negative consequence, in the most negative of circumstances. So I don't know necessarily that a ground operation is, is uh, conducive to uh, secure their release. The third question mark is whether or not Israel has, and I don't know the answer to that, to be honest, whether or not Israel has sufficient and adequate intelligence, sufficient and adequate, uh, um, what we call target, a target bank. Uh, um, who are you going to hit? Where are you going to hit it? With how much force committed to that uh, um, objective. And you take all these three question marks and you understand why there has been an amassing of troops, but not yet a ground operation. 
I wonder about the aid that's being delivered to Gaza. Um, you know, the, the, the world media seems to be pressing for more, and apparently yeah. Gaza is about to run out of fuel. Israel continues to point out that, hey, when fuel trucks go over there, Hamas takes them right away. So they would essentially be delivering fuel directly to the enemy um, to fuel the war effort um, against them. H- how do they deal with that? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a major problem because that fuel is used uh, for the generators who are then used for the uh, launching of the uh, um, some of the rockets that Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, its sister organization, have. Of course, On they the also hand, need fuel to run desalinization plants and hospitals, well, right? Exactly. That was my second. On the other hand, that same fuel, which is a fungible commodity, um, is used for hospitals, is used for desalinization, as you mentioned correctly. And so the idea is that only um, a limited number of convoys will go in, most through the southern tip of the Gaza Strip, which actually borders Egypt rather than Israel. But um, uh, that the Red Cross, the UN, the Egyptians, and in some um, um, instances, Israel, will monitor uh, uh, what's going in and who's receiving. What happens once it crosses the, uh, uh, the border, the gate, the fence, whatever, um, and gets into Gaza, and as you mentioned, uh, can be taken over by Hamas, is, is a problem. Um, and that's part of this uh, humanitarian uh, crisis that is uh, quietly but uh, surely uh, brewing in Gaza. So, so that's, that's going to be a major issue. On top of which, uh, uh, President Biden himself has repeatedly asked that Israel allow for a continuous uh, um, inflow of uh, humanitarian aid, including that uh, gasoline, including that uh, fuel. So, Ambassador, I mean, I'm just not sure what the catalyst is for a next step uh, other than some s- significant breakthrough on the uh, hostage front. What What do you believe or what are most observers I guess, expecting over the next several days. Well, okay. You know, again, what is the political goal here? The political goal is to eradicate Hamas. Then practically Israel needs to take over the entire Gaza Strip, which is 2.2 million people in a very narrow and very the densest, in fact, place on Earth. So that's a problem. So what you should be looking in the next few days is whether or not Israel clarifies what its political ends is what the political objective is. If it is less than uh, dismantling Hamas, then you will see a smaller scale ground um, operation. Um, but but bear in mind, you know, anyone who's uh, listening to us should bear in mind that there are various kinds and various uh, uh, scopes of a ground operation. It could be small incursions by small units. It could be medium-sized incursions beyond it in and out, Uh, um, uh, go in, destroy, get out. And it could, in fact, uh, be cutting the Gaza Strip in half, leaving the southern part uh, uh, where most of the population is right now uh, um, intact and and fighting uh, um, Hamas in the north. Now, there is another major consideration that we haven't even discussed yet, which deserves a a completely different segment, obviously. And that is the, uh, the likelihood of escalation. Um, the more escalation, the more power, the more firepower is used in Gaza, 
um, the more likely it is that this will expand or spread into Lebanon, where Hezbollah, armed with um, um, nearly 100,000 much more precise rockets, and empowered, emboldened, and supported by Iran. So this is a, um, you know, this is a, a, a series of, of, of bad choices that need to be made. So just 30 seconds left, uh, Ambassador. W- what is the status with uh, Lebanon right now? Well, there's, there's a ping pong of um, an exchange of fire going on for the last 96 hours, for the last four days. Um, you know, the, 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 my, my, my biggest uh, fear is that there will be an escalation as a result of a miscalculation. That someone will think that someone is planning something that the other side didn't really plan. And the um, response would be disproportionate. And that would entail a, a similar or equal disproportionate a response and before you know it hell breaks loose yep, right now it, right now everyone is poking everyone but it's not it's not an escalatory right. yet by the way i know we don't we're out of right. time that's the reason why president biden sent the uh, uh gerald yep. for the uss gerald the carrier Ford. group yep very good ambassador thank you so much for taking the time ambassador alone pinkas former uh, israel general counsel in new york Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV audience and radio listeners. It is the second major oil deal in just the past few weeks, and this is a big one. Chevron announcing a $53 billion all-stock deal to buy Hess. And we're joined now by the two men behind it, Mike Worth, Chevron Chairman and CEO, and John Hess, Hess Corporation CEO. Gentlemen, thank you so much. What a pleasure. No joke, this is the only question I'm getting today. Will the toy trucks from Hess continue to be available at Christmas time? Yeah, so you know, not to hold you in suspense, yes, they will. Okay. In fact, next year is going to be the 60th anniversary of the Hess toy truck. We sell them on the internet and we continue, we intend to continue selling them. So I got to ask, I, I didn't know about these trucks beforehand. Was it part of the deal? 
the, is, is there some line in the deal about the trucks? Was well, it part of the negotiation? Let, let, let me put it this way. Mike and I came to a mutually agreeable understanding to continue selling the trucks. That's a yes. That is an actual <laughs> yes from two CEOs. So, Mike, walk us through actually how this deal did come about. Um, we heard earlier that you guys have been talking for a couple years, and I'm really curious as to why now is the right time to make this happen. Well, we have been talking for mm -hmm. a while. There's a, a terrific alignment between the two companies, our portfolios, the cultures of the company, and, and the people. And uh, particularly as uh, Hess's development in Guyana has continued to be de-risked and progress, uh, what was at one point in time kind of a wider gap in valuation has, has narrowed. And the, the stocks of the two companies have traded into a range where it works for both of us. And so uh, now's the time that those, those circumstances have come together. But for, for quite some time, we've seen the, the, the fit and the appeal and been, been working on this. Which, I'm just so curious, John, because on the call, it seemed like some analysts were intimating that, hey, did, did you get a high enough price? Sure. Like, and also, you're doing things very well in Guyana, and I appreciate it's also the Bakken, et cetera, but if you just focus on Guyana, you guys are already crushing it. Like, why do you need Chevron? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Um, I think some context would be important. Okay. Uh, our stock for the last five years was the number one total shareholder return in the industry, whether it's independent mm -hmm. or whether it's major oil company. Last year, our stock went up 94% number two on the S&P. So we've already created a lot of value. Uh, at the same time, now that uh, the pricing got in a range that would work both for Chevron and work for Hess, uh, we think we came up with a win-win. Hess uh, brings Chevron growth in resource, growth mm -hmm. in production, growth in cash flow. Chevron brings Hess financial strength in terms of a diversity of world-class assets, uh, in terms of a uh, sterling balance sheet, and in terms of uh, industry-leading cash returns. And when you put the two together, you create the premier oil and gas company positioned for the energy transition. Mike, what, what I'm hearing here is that this is a great fit. Could you do this on your own? Could you build what, what Hess has built from the ground up? Is, is it easier to buy than build right now? Well, look, this is about long-term growth and long-term value which is what we're always seeking. Uh, Hess has yeah. a unique portfolio that actually strengthens our portfolio with some things we're always trying to do. We're always out exploring. We're looking for yep. new finds. Guyana's the biggest uh, discovery in more than a decade in this industry. It's, a, it's just a unique and compelling asset. And, uh, and so it would be difficult for us to do on our right. own. We continue to explore. We'll continue. Everybody in our industry is looking for these things. But this was a great opportunity for us to join a partnership that's done a terrific job in developing this asset. But also uh, the other assets in the HES portfolio are ones that will be additive for us as well. The Bakken, the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, Southeast Asia. And so it's a very nice fit uh, at a portfolio level, nice fit at a culture level. And we're going to create more value for shareholders. Yeah, so let's get to the Bakken part too. So how important is the Bakken going to be in your portfolio? Because clearly the rhetoric after this deal was it's all about Guyana, right? Like that's this deep water. It's amazing. The costs are so low. It's going to be awesome. Well, where's the Bakken in this? Well, the Bakken's very important. We've got a big shale business already, right? Yeah. With positions of the Permian, uh, the DJ Basin, we're, we're the largest producer now. Uh, Hess has been doing a great job in the Bakken for a long time. That's really where this all began. And, uh, and so for us, it's about adding another scaled position in shale that is performing very well. We can bring whatever expertise we may have. We're working on technologies to improve recovery and, uh, and learn from, from our new colleagues at Hess who are doing things in a basin. Uh, when we went to the DJ, we learned some things that we hadn't been doing in the Permian that made us better. I'm certain the same thing will happen here. So it's absolutely an important part of the transaction.
John, you talked about the price narrowing. You started off far apart, bid ask, kind of widespread, right. it came in. What brought it in? What factors allowed you to bring that understanding between the two firms together? Well, you know, the gap uh, in shareholders recognizing our value, uh, we weren't getting credit for this right. 11 billion barrels of oil equivalent uh, resource that we had in Guyana. So the market narrowed the gap for you? Yes, exactly. And, and then it got to the point where it got to the win zone for Mike and the win zone for us. And, you know, you also got to remember, this is a stock for stock deal. So some people mm -hmm. would say, yeah. well, geez, you're selling it. And we're not selling for cash. We're staying invested. Yep, yep, yep. Our family is going to be a long-term shareholder of Chevron. And we're happy about it. And we think there's going to be a lot of upside to come, in addition to which uh, our own dividend is going to go from $1.75 a share yep. to $6 a share. And next year, $6.50 a share. So you're getting the benefit of growth in asset value with growth in cash returns. And that's a magic formula. And I think it'll be the best oil company to own and actually the best oil company to work for. I have to say, you guys seem to get along quite well. Yes. Uh, you don't always see that with, with the oil mergers. Um, how did you guys first start this conversation like years ago? What was that? What was that? Was it like you guys at a Sarah Week dinner like chatting? What was it like? Uh, it was actually at a dinner, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't at Sarah Week. It was uh, at, at another location. But look, John and I have been friends. Uh, we've been great admirers of Hess. I've been a great admirer of John for, for many, many years. Uh, and uh, it was a very natural evolution, I think, as we're both looking to improve our businesses and create value for our shareholders. Mm -hmm. We had a nice conversation. Uh, as John said, in the beginning, uh, the market wasn't recognizing the potential mm -hmm. in uh, the Guiana asset in particular. As that's been de-risked and as we get closer and closer to this cash flow inflection, uh, we really did move into this zone. But it's, uh, it's, been, very, uh, it's been a very friendly discussion along yeah, the way. It seems like it. And, and by the way, uh, you haven't mentioned yet, but we look forward to John joining Chevron's board of directors and continuing to exert influence over the strategy of our company. And he's got key relationships with uh, partners and uh, governments around the world that will continue to benefit from. So, and also, if I can, you know, Mike and I have known us, uh, each other through the industry for years. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's the best CEO in the energy industry, one of the best in the United States. So uh, have a lot of respect for him. So, so it wasn't succession know, things for Hess. It was no. not a succession. No, no. <laughs> we were actually that. prepared to continue as an independent. That's okay. what our history is. Uh, we're celebrating our 90th anniversary as a company this year. Uh, we have the best hand in the business, the best growth portfolio in the business, and we're just executing the strategy to go forward. But, uh, you know, Chevron brings forward that diverse uh, portfolio of assets, strong balance sheet, as well as high cash returns. And when you put those strengths together with our growth strengths, you really create, I, I'd say, you know, the premier energy company that's out there. Mike, there aren't many assets like Hess out there, but there are a lot of assets out there. And I hate to sort of ask this question on a day when you're doing a massive deal, what are you done yet? Is this an industry that is going to continue to consolidate? We've just seen two really big deals in as many weeks. That can't be by accident. Well, I can only speak to our, our deal, yep. and uh, this is the right deal for us. We actually did another deal earlier this year. So for us, uh, integrating is uh, very important when you do a transaction. You, you actually, to create value, you need to bring the companies yep. together, the people. Uh, you need to continue to operate safely and deliver to your customers. And so our focus uh, for the next uh, you know, several months, uh, if not longer, mm -hmm. is really about execution and, and executing well. In the long of time, you know, our industry has grown through organic and inorganic activity over time. Our company has done the same. And I do think, uh, you know, in the future there, there potentially could be other things. But that's, that's not here and now. That's further down the road for sure. Do you guys think that oil's going to stay volatile and trade above 100, 150 
I'm going to go to John because I feel like maybe you can talk more about what you really think the oil price is going to be now. <laughs> Look, I, I, you know, in the short term, there's a direct correlation between world oil inventories and price. Uh, world inventories are drawing at about a million barrels a day this quarter. Uh, as you get to next year, we think demand's going to grow maybe a million and a half barrels a day, barring a worldwide recession. Hopefully we don't get there. I know there are all kinds of geopolitical events, be it in the Ukraine or be it in the Levant that are going on right now, tragic events. Um, but taking that factor out, you know, we think the market's going to be tight and the supply side of the equation is going to have to run fast to keep up with the demand side. Shale's no longer the swing producer. Saudi Arabia and OPEC are. They're going to keep the market stabilized. But I think the real issue uh, for the world to understand is that oil and gas are needed for decades. Yep. Mm -hmm. They're key to an affordable, just and secure energy transition. I think the um, conflict in Ukraine put a shining light on energy security. And at the end of the day, um, you know, oil and gas are a strategic industry for our country. In terms of jobs, 12 million jobs, more than automotive, direct and indirect. In terms of electricity costs, two to three times less than they are in Europe and most of Asia. And ultimately, national security. We're energy independent. Europe buys 70% of their oil. China buys 70% mm -hmm. of their oil. So yep. we have a real strength. We should be leaning into it uh, for economic prosperity, but also national security. Mike, isn't that the real message from this deal? You could have done a deal in, in the energy transition space. You didn't. You did this deal. Isn't the message coming from this that, that the industry is is now at a point where it is going to invest in the future, that the energy transition story is of interest, but it's not the only area of interest, that this is a, an industry that the country, that the world still needs to rely on. I, you could have done other deals. You did this one. Isn't that the message that comes from this? Well, I, I'd put it a little differently, Guy. We have done other deals. Yep. Earlier this quarter, we closed on the largest green hydrogen manufacturing sure. and storage facility that will be built in the United States. We're the second largest renewable fuels producer in the U.S., and we're expanding uh, our yep. production capacity there. So we are doing the other deals, but I think the point that John's making is really important. Uh, we need to continue to invest in the energy system that supplies the world today, even as we're investing in one that can integrate into that and help reduce the carbon mm -hmm. intensity tomorrow. We believe the future of energy is lower carbon. We believe these new technologies will play a greater role, and we continue to invest. So I don't think you should read this as a lack of commitment to the energy transition, but we need to invest in what the world runs on today. This makes us a stronger producer. It takes two great American companies and brings them together, which is good for national security and yeah. economic security. And we're committed, both of our companies are committed to a lower carbon energy system. Um, Mike, speaking of, are you able to pump more in Venezuela right now? And will you be investing more in Venezuela because of some sanction relief? So we have seen uh, production in our ventures in Venezuela increase this year from around 50,000 barrels a day when the year began to something between 100 and 150 today. And we've been gradually seeing that come up. We've recently seen uh, some further actions by the U.S. to reduce some of the sanctions on Venezuela. Uh, this is a slow-moving uh, story, Is it sustainable, though? Like, if you increase to 150, can you hold it there? I, I think we can as long as we can operate the way we're operating today, and okay. some of these constraints have been taken off of us. And uh, uh, but, you know, the Venezuelan industry has been under pressure for a variety of reasons for the last couple of decades, and turning that around will take time and it will take investment. So I, I wouldn't expect this to be something that goes up dramatically, but, yes, we've seen some steady improvement, and we're, we're looking to... Uh, to try to continue that. 
Gentlemen, thank you so much. We could talk forever, but oh. we'll, we'll let you guys go. It's been a very long day. Mike Worth, Chevron Chairman and CEO, and John Hess, uh, Hess Corporation CEO. Congrats on the merger, guys. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. RJ Gallo, he's at that Federated Hermes thing. I first met the Federated folks out in Pittsburgh. Uh, that's kind of where they, they hang out, but they're all over the place these days. Hey, RJ, we see Bill Ackman here says he's covered his bond short amid mounting global risk. Did you uh, notice that? And kind of what's that? Do you have any comment there? Well, what's Bill Ackman gets a lot of attention in the market <laughs> and, uh, you know, more attention than RJ Gallo at Federated Hermes. And that, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but, but I would note that we at Federated Hermes have been leaning long uh, and, and we've been wrong. Uh, the, the bond market sell-off has uh, taken on sort of a life of its own. It's knocking down all kinds of financial assets. Stocks are looking at bonds an awful lot these days. Um, I can't say I'm surprised at Bill Ackman's comment. I mean, it's one sentence, so it's very, very, very brief, uh, but it tells you what he's thinking. Um, I do think the geopolitical situation has deteriorated sharply uh, for obvious reasons, and the prospect of a wider conflict, um, you know, bringing in many different parties, you know, typically when when things like this happen, it should be friendly uh, to Treasury prices. So far, we've only had brief moments of that, and, and there could be more to come. It's hard to be short Treasuries when there's so much geopolitical risk and so many potential directions this could go. But it's hard to be long, especially uh, duration, when, you know, little swings in uh, yield can mean a huge swing in the price and... Um, we're seeing big swings in yields, right? So how do you deal with that? Uh, it's a great point. I mean, now, first of all, uh, remember just some some bond math. The, uh, the fact that yields have risen has taken the duration on the U.S. Treasury index to 572. Last, back in May, it was 639. You know, that's these are positively convex instruments, right? So the, the the fact of the matter is is that the duration uh, passive duration of the index has gotten shorter because yields have gone higher. Uh, that doesn't necessarily insulate you from price loss, but you're losing uh, at a lesser and lesser uh, velocity as a result. So, uh, but but we're not focusing as much on that as much as we are the fundamentals that we think um, are apt to erode. The economy has been red hot. It is obviously clear. Employment strong. The, there, there's very few signs of the consumer fading just yet. We think it's a, it's a matter of time that the, the diminishment of, of COVID era excess savings, uh, pressure on small businesses, uh, much, much higher borrowing costs all over the economy. Uh, you know, the rules of economics have not been revoked. Uh, the, the time frame and the lags are, are difficult this time, but we still think uh, will manifest itself in a slower economy and we'll get some relief uh, from these current bond yields, and yields should retrace somewhat lower over the next three to six months. So we're still got, leaning a little. Got to be slower than five percent, which is what we're, you know, hearing in terms of third quarter estimates and even uh, for Q4 some forecasts. The, my question on the consumer is: clearly, the consumer is going to sp spend down savings, and clearly, the consumer is putting more on credit cards, and we're seeing delinquencies pop up. But is that more than? Um, you know, it usually is, or are we just getting back to pre-COVID levels? 
No, it's a great question. And we recently had a webcast with some colleagues, Phil Orlando and Linda Dissel, who talk to you guys sometimes, both TV and radio. And we were trying to sort of back up and look at the whole picture for the consumer, because the bottom line is, even though there are negatives, some of which we just touched on, uh, the unemployment rate is low. Real personal incomes relative to the now lower level of inflation, albeit still north of two, but lower than it was, real personal incomes have gone up. Um, when you think about the benefits to savers from having very safe liquid assets like money market funds, of which we manage plenty of them here at Federated Hermes, people uh, in the higher income brackets who have plenty of savings and aren't pulling it all down to spend uh, are benefiting from low risk, real returns. So there are tailwinds to the consumer. We are not calling for a collapsing consumer. That's not the case at all. I think what we're going to see is that the, the median household, maybe even up to the to the top 20% of households, uh, everybody but the top 20% is probably going to fade. Enough so that the economic momentum coming out of what will be a very strong print for Q3 GDP is going to slow down. That the economy is not about to tank, but it's going to slow. And that's going to be good news for the Fed in their broader effort to still get inflation going down. Then you throw in the geopolitical risk, the sentiment-destroying challenges that occur from wars uh, happening across different parts of the world. We think that the economy is going to slow. The net impact on the consumer is a negative enough, not for them to collapse, but to fade from what has been a breakneck pace of spending. Hey, RJ, when I look at the uh, Bloomberg Index browser, INGO, for those sitting in front of a terminal, I see the only place in the U.S. fixed income that's in the green this year is U.S. corporate high yield up 3.9%. Do I stay with that trade? Do I add to it? Or do I say, boy, maybe I should redeploy out of, out of high yield here? Yeah, I, I have a whole screen on my on launch pad here that I've built. It's just a sea of red. <laughs> uh, and the greens that show up are few and far between. Leveraged loans are another space uh, that actually has some positives. Um, in both of those cases, leveraged loans and U.S. high yield, to your question, you know, that's a credit intensive asset, not a duration intensive one. So it makes sense that the, uh, with the economy surprising to the upside, surprising everyone, including Chairman Powell, he said it last week, everyone's been surprised by the economy's performance in this calendar year. It's been great for higher credit, higher credit risk assets. It's been terrible for duration, low credit risk assets that are interest rate sensitive. We think uh, that should start to flip the script. We are underweight high yield. We are underweight loans. Uh, we believe that the slowing economy, small business bankruptcies are on the rise. The cumulative impact of the tightening of monetary conditions to include uh, what are likely collapsing commercial real estate values and office space, all of these factors are going to catch up and they're going to reward uh, higher quality bonds over lower quality bonds. So we're underweight high yield and underweight leverage loans at this point. That has not been the right call up to this point. Right. Uh, right. But we're looking forward that turning around. Hey, RJ, for better or worse, I'm, my co-host is a, a, a native of the great state of Ohio. So, of course, I have to ask you. Oh, no. How real? Look is at his mug, Michigan dude. Team? Look at his mug. Oh, I look see at the it. mug here. Boy, your Michigan Wolverines look like the team to beat this year. Tell us about it. Oh, that was a beatdown of Michigan State. I mean, that was. <laughs> I almost felt bad for the green and white. <laughs> so, you guys, I mean, this is going to be it. I mean, this looks like maybe the best Michigan team in a long time. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's very exciting to watch. Uh, you know, very talented team. I, I I'm no. I, I watch football a lot, but I don't know if you want me to expound any further than that. No, we'll leave it at that because <laughs> you're going to come in to. Happy I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I love it when Michigan has a strong team, and I'm sure they love it when Ohio State is a big competitor. Like that's what makes it fun when you don't know who's going to win the game. When the when the boys really have to give it all, 
their all. Right. You know, so we're looking take, forward. To, yeah, we're looking forward to that game at the end of the year. Michigan. It's in Ohio Ann Arbor, State. I think. This in Ann Arbor. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. R.J. Gallego, Federated Hermes. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome Elizabeth Hurd. She's a professor of political science at Northwestern University. Professor, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, a lot of us, I'm going to say, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, I don't think we have a full appreciation of the stark differences between Israel and the Palestinians that manifests itself with all this attention we've seen over the decades. Where do you, where's, where's the starting point for us to try to get an understanding there? Thanks for having me. Good morning um, to all your listeners and viewers. Listen, it's a really good question. And I think it's not one that's very easy to answer because there are many different starting points. One of the most common starting points would be to simply begin with uh, Zionism, with the founding of the idea that the Jewish people in Europe, this was a European movement, should have their own homeland, and that homeland would ensure their safety in the face of persecution and violence by Europeans in the uh, 19th century. So this goes back to the 19th century. We can fast forward to the end of World War II. We know about the horrors of the Holocaust. Uh, people were in, Jewish people were in desperate search of a homeland. And the British, who were controlling the region that we now know of as Israel-Palestine, declared through the Balfour Declaration that the Jewish homeland would have the support and sanction of the uh, British imperial power. And it wasn't long before Israel declared independence as a state on the mid-May, 14th of May, 1948. And since then, uh, it has been slowly but surely uh, expressing its authority and control and sovereignty over what we now know as Israel and Palestine. These lands are contested and have been contested since the first Jews started arriving. So, you know, a lot of people think, uh, and I have thought in the past, that Israel, that the Israelis came in there and um, took over Palestine. Like, there was a country there called Palestine, and that was... Okay. Moved into by Israel, but actually, that's not the case, right? There was that. What was there before the Israelis went in? 
so this was we did not have the sovereign state system and this was kind of the days of empire and so we had originally it was an ottoman province what we now know as palestine was an ottoman province which is like a state in the ottoman empire that state when the ottoman empire fell after world war one it was uh, basically disassembled it ceased to exist a rump state came into being that was turkey that is what the kind of the inheritor of the ottoman empire and the British colonial authorities took over what was then called Mandatory Palestine, which was an area that was under the authority of the British colonial powers. And Mandatory Palestine was uh, then ruled by the British until the, after the Second World War, when they gave up authority over uh, the, the territory. And Israel declared independence with the uh, express support of the British authorities in the Balfour Declaration. That's so the, the that's the quick history. So well, no country named Palestine, but no, but no, but there was Palestine. Well, and there were pa- Palestinian people. Are they? I mean, are they Jordanian? They're actually Palestinian people. Um, many of the Palestinian people, after Israel was founded, the state of Israel in 1948, were forced from their homes and they had to leave um, their historic villages and towns and communities. And many of them did go to Jordan. And many went to other surrounding countries and became refugees. And many of them are still living in refugee camps in the surrounding com- countries today. They are Palestinian Jordanians, but they are uh, they are not just Jordanians. Uh, so these countries are inventions of uh, Western colonial powers. And the lines that were drawn to divide them one from another are relatively recent. Um, but the peoples have been there for a very long time. Professor, I'm not, I don't even know if there's an answer here, but... If I were to, if, if is there an independent consensus about who should get the land? I mean, independently, if you just look at that, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there any consensus? No. Who's right? And that's why, no, there is no consensus. And that's why we're seeing so much violence today. The only way we're going to reach an end to this horrific violence, which is taking innocent lives, I think we can all agree and we can all condemn and settle around the consensus that innocent lives should not be taken. Civilians should not be killed. Children should not be murdered. That's the consensus. How do we get there? Who's, we have to share the land. I think that now that's where there is no consensus. Who does the land belong to? Who has the right to govern it? Who has the legitimate authority over its people to define it, write its laws and write its constitutions and name the state? That's what's contested. And no, there is no consensus, but there are two peoples and there is one land. So there's this violence is going to continue until there's some kind of resolution that's reached. How much of this is based in religion? I mean, it's uh, it seems like if you pull that those beliefs out that some you know magical being gave you or or this person or that person a, a piece of land, um, we wouldn't have these these wars. That's a good question. Um, I wish it were the case that we're just a matter of uh, belief, but the attachments uh, and the stakes and the the ramifications of this conflict run much farther and wider than just belief. They are about control of the economies, control of water, control of access to ports, control of historical sites that have uh, religious, but also political and social connotations that run back centuries. So we can't really disentangle the religious aspect. For sure, it heightens the tension, but it's really not the only factor at play. Do we know um, to what extent 
the Palestinian people, wherever they are, the West Bank, Gaza, to what extent do mm-hmm. they support Hamas? Because it, it seems like you could get these two peoples together and say, you get your mm-hmm. land, we're going to split this land up, and, and it's nobody's going to be really happy, but this is the way it's going to be, and it's the best for everybody. But then Hamas comes in and, and really makes it difficult. So what's the level of support for Hamas and Hezbollah amongst some of the Palestinians? The level of support for Hamas and Hezbollah has been increasing um, as a result of the fact that Israel has continued to build and support settlements in the West Bank. So in other words, your idea of giving each side some land and calling it calling it a day is a great idea. And that was tried in the 1990s. It's called the Oslo Accords. Uh, neither side was particularly happy. Um, and neither side cooperated. And so what we have, there were unaddressed issues. What we have today that is an increasingly expansionist Israel. In other words, it's it's getting bigger and bigger, taking more and more land. And the Palestinians are increasingly desperate, frustrated, and lashing out. Right. Um, so we're seeing a support, Ugh. rising support for Hamas. However, support for Hamas is quite low historically right. among the Palestinians. Palestinians don't want this violence either. I mean, right. who would? No one does. Exactly. This is just, yeah, it's just incredibly, uh, you know, just, uh, just. It's complex, it's complex which is yeah. why it's great to have someone like Professor Hurd, yep. who studied government at Wesleyan, international finance at Yale, political science at Johns Hopkins, to put these disciplines together yep. and help us figure things out. Very good. Elizabeth Hurd, Chair of Religious Studies and Professor of Political Science at Northwestern. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Fraser Atkinson. In fact, they, they're the first ones really to go electric because the municipalities yes. need to show their green creds and... I mean, frankly, there's so many buses and, uh, you know, um, sort of mass transit vehicles on the road uh, that it's better for all of us if they're not spewing out um, nasty things from the exhaust pipe. Absolutely. Fraser Atkinson joins us. He's the CEO of Green Power Motor Company. It's a publicly traded company. GP is a symbol. Talk to us. Uh, first of all, Fraser, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, can you tell us what you guys do at Green Power? What's your play in the EV space? Well, thanks for having us on your show. And uh, we're, we're, we're focused on the medium and heavy-duty space, which is quite different than the uh, traditional light-duty automotive. Uh, those vehicles tend to be used less than an hour a day. And our vehicles are on average used 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And we even have a few deployments where they're used uh, 24 hours a day and uh, they do top charging in the early hours of the morning. So that's the space that we're focused on. And it's uh, it's it's been a little slower to to uh, catch on, but uh, we're finding that it's uh, it's got some uh, serious legs uh, for for both the current and the future. Fraser, how do you um, how do you juice those vehicles up for such uh, industrial use? I mean, um, I would think you know most electric vehicles have range of a few hours, and then you've got to plug them in for many more. Uh, how, how do you make sure that these electric buses have enough um, you know energy to to do their duty? Well, most of the applications we're, we're uh, involved with uh, tend to be 
uh, lower speed and lots of stops and starts, which is absolutely ideal for an EV. In terms of charging, um, our the class four vehicles, which is the the our largest volume seller, uh, both in terms of passenger, cargo, and as well the type A school bus, is that uh, that particular uh, set of vehicles, we can either charge with a level two or a DC fast charge. So we're, we're very flexible and can be compatible with uh, what the requirements might be, uh, what a customer might need from uh, the use of that vehicle. So where do you make these electric school buses? Well, we've got, uh, we use contract manufacturers, uh, similar to what Apple does with uh, their various products. Uh, all of our products are designed and uh, final assembly in, uh, in, in the United States. Uh, we recently opened a facility in West Virginia that was courtesy of the state of West Virginia, bought the facility uh, for our use. And uh, that uh, uh, is going to be our focus for our type A, the smaller school bus, and the type D, the larger school bus, that where uh, we see uh, uh, demand across the board for both of those products. Is demand now um, starting to pick up exponentially? I mean, you've been at Green Power since 2010, so you've seen a solid 13 years of this business. Um, does it look a lot different in the last couple of years than it did to you for the first decade? Well, the early years, uh, there literally were no medium or heavy-duty uh, electric buses that had been deployed. The first one was 2011-2012. And, and uh, that was uh, with a company that had already uh, generated uh, deliveries and sales in other jurisdictions. So the industry is really only 10 years old or 10, 10 plus. And the early years, the vehicles, uh, the, the, the batteries were too heavy. The range uh, wasn't able to satisfy even the most basic duty cycle. All that's changed uh, to where now we can handle probably 95, 96% of almost all duty cycles for uh, medium or heavy duty truck or bus. And uh, that's uh, really helped fuel the interest in electrifying fleets. And then combined with money and mandates uh, by at both the federal and the state level, where uh, certain operators are required to electrify fleets within certain time periods, has really created incredible uh, uh, tailwinds for the whole industry as well as our company. Fraser, talk to us about kind of the, the sales process here. When you go to a school district, just describe for us how the sales process goes. Typically, they'd like, they uh, the school districts are very hands-on. They like to see, uh, see and touch the vehicle. They like to have their various uh, groups, you know, whether it's the uh, the maintenance group, uh, whether it's the drivers group, uh, the uh, trustees that you know really have to uh, answer any questions that uh, their constituents have. So uh, we tend to do a lot of ride and drives or dem demonstrations of the vehicles. And often those aren't just one or twice, but there are multiple occasions. And once uh, a particular organization is satisfied that yes, this is the vehicle that they can see uh, they want to move forward with. Uh, then depending on the state, uh, some states require dealers be involved in the process. Others allow us to go direct. 
markets. We have a real mix in terms of our go-to-market strategy, uh, but then we're engaged in terms of, you know, uh, the, essentially the big picture question, which is how are they going to pay for it? Yep. And school districts are not organizations that have a lot of money. So it's the recent funding that has come in both federally and with certain states that has really fueled the uh, excitement and the electrification around school buses. So I want to get a sense. I'm just looking at your financial statements here, Fraser. Um, how do you fund your growth? I see, you know, you're a publicly traded company, but a market cap of only $71 million. Uh, you know, several million dollars of debt on the balance sheet and EBITDA negative. How do you fund your growth? Well, we've our our business model. We've we've had uh, success in generating a gross profit on every sale of or not every sale, but the combined sales of our vehicle every quarter, and which is actually pretty unique in that most of our competition is uh, still operating with a gross profit loss. In other words, every vehicle they sell, they're actually okay. selling at a loss before any of their expenses, and. Uh, our our growth has been such that we are getting closer and closer to that uh, important break-even uh, from a cash flow point of view. We also had built up our inventory uh, that, uh, you know, post when we went uh, and did our NASDAQ IPO in the fall of 2020, we were able to move from building vehicles pursuant to customer orders to where we we're actually able to build into inventory. And that was critical in getting some of the larger deals that we are now delivering into. So in our most recent quarter, our inventory actually was lower in terms of the overall uh, amount that we had in inventory because we're a, we've been able to shift to deliveries and fulfilling orders uh, that uh, as a result of uh, being able to show that we had the ability to, to satisfy the various order requirements. And uh, we've been a, a low-cost operator. We've been able to manage our numbers so that our expenses compared to our peers are substantially less. So uh, we don't have a large financial requirement. And lastly, we did have an ATM or do have an ATM in place. We haven't drawn on it because we haven't needed it. Uh, uh, but in this, the early part of 2023, as we we're going through that inventory uh, growth, uh, we uh, uh, were able to uh, take down about $5 million off our ATM. Okay. Interesting story. Uh, really interesting story. looks like uh, potentially some growth there going forward as maybe you see some of that uh, Inflation Reduction Act money come into the play. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's continue our C-suite conversation. This time we're going to focus on the healthcare space, Big pharma, um, biotechnology, uh, therapeutics, all that good stuff. For that, we're joined by Joel Lewis. He's the CEO and president of Galactin Therapeutics. It's a publicly traded stock on NASDAQ. G-A-L-T uh, is the symbol there. Joel, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about what you guys are working on over at Galactin Therapeutics. Hi, Matt. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me today. It's, uh, we pronounce it Galactin Therapeutics. Actually, we Thank are you. a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We we are a um, late stage biotech company. We're conducting a large global pivotal trial. It's a phase two B three trial in Nash cirrhosis. Um, what so is Nash specific... cirrhosis? 
yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think when people think about cirrhosis, they normally immediately go to cirrhosis caused by alcohol. Actually, the fastest growing segment of this patient population ha is is getting cirrhosis from fatty liver disease. So, um, NASH is sort of the technical term for fatty liver disease, non alcoholic steatohepatitis. I won't say that again. We'll just call it fatty liver disease. Um, and, and again, it, there's there's a large, um, a huge growing patient population. We are specifically focused on patients who have progressed all the way to cirrhosis. Mm. So talk to us about, I guess, the, the treatment. How, how, how does your therapeutic work here? Okay. So we, so we have a a carbohydrate molecule that actually targets galactin, uh, specifically galactin-3, which has been associated with many inflammatory uh, diseases. And when you think about cirrhosis, it's the ultimate inflammation that eventually leads to scar tissue. Uh, our mechanism of action, we, we actually um, target activated macrophages, which is where galactin is produced and we reduce the overexpression of, of galactin-3 when people have cirrhosis and, and reduce when you reduce that protein, um, you, you give the, your liver's a very regenerative right. organ actually, and you give it a chance to heal. How, how big is this market, do you think? I, mean, I know you guys size these, these markets sure. out pretty closely. So, so and, and I don't need everybody to take just my word for it. So we, I was listening to um, the Fatty Liver Foundation, which is a, a patient advocacy group. That The estimate is that one-third of the world population has fatty liver. Oof. And now, now, when you say that, it's not fatty liver disease. It's just fat in their liver. So steatosis is what it's called, the medical term. And out, out of that patient, out of that potential patient group, Right now in the U.S., the estimate from insurance reimbursement is 16 million, more than 16 million patients. We've seen estimates higher because obviously not everybody's insured. So we've seen estimates of up to 28 million people who actually have fatty liver disease that's progressed to NASH. Um, and of those patients, one to two million of them will develop cirrhosis. So what do, I guess what we've heard a lot about in the marketplace in the healthcare space over the last several months are these GLP-1 drugs, Ozempic, for, for example. Yeah. How does that influence your part of the market? Yeah, and, and I heard your podcast when you guys talked about that back in August um, with Stephen. So, so yeah, obviously there's a big drive and most of the companies in, in the NASH space are targeting early stage fatty liver disease. And clearly, you know, patients that lose weight um, have a good chance to to not progress to cirrhosis. The issue is, you know, I, I don't see how that all of those drugs are going to be so pervasive in the market. There's always going to be a set of patients that develop cirrhosis from fatty liver disease. And by the way, we happen to be doing our study in cirrhosis caused by fatty liver disease, but we do believe that this mechanism of action will work with all cirrhotic patients and cirrhosis is caused by many things, including alcohol, including hepatitis. That's a much bigger problem in Asia than here. But but we believe that this will always be a big patient population. And again, just so everybody knows, the only treatment for cirrhosis is liver transplant. There are no treatments for cirrhosis. And just to give everybody a, an idea we do about 9,000 liver transplants a year mm -hmm. in the U.S. 
Uh, wow. I think people think that number is much bigger. Yep. Uh, so where where are you in the development of, of your therapeutics? So we are, we are conducting our phase 2B3 adaptive pivotal trial. Uh, we expect data in Q4 of next year. Um, it's, it's an interim analysis, but if we repeat the results that we achieved in our phase two program, um, we will be seeking an accelerated approval at, at that point in time. So what's an end game uh, for your company and, and companies like yours that, you know, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the healthcare space, but it seems like every Monday we have a bunch sure. of m and <laughs> trades where a big pharma company buys out a, a smaller pharma company to get access to their therapeutics or their drugs. Is that a typical, is that an exit for a company like yours? I, th I think most biotech companies have that as their exit strategy. Um, I, I, there's, there's clearly a segment of the biotech industry that wants to develop the drug themselves. Um, that, that is not our exit strategy that, you know, to do that, you have to have large marketing departments and big, um, big departments that are looking at how you're going to price the drug and all those things. So, so yeah, that would be, you know, either, either license the, the IP or partner in some other way with pharma or a sale. And this is not just for older people. I mean, I, I hear when we talk about fatty liver disease, it's also for children as well, right? So, so so there there is fatty liver disease in children they don't develop cirrhosis right okay so 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 yes i i would i would say that that there is a growing problem with fatty liver disease in in children um and and certainly we have some peers in the space that are looking at those things we, we but we are so we are really focused on the end stage of this disease where we believe there's the greatest medical need all right, very good. Uh, Joel Lewis, thank you so much. We appreciate it. CEO and president of Galactin Therapeutics. Again, G-A-L-T is the ticker to load into your Bloomer terminal. Get that NASDAQ quote. It's about $100 million in market cap, up 75% year to date. So maybe some optimism out there in the street uh, for this drug and this treatment. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.